Here we go. I'm believing this is going to be our best one yet. Let me, uh, let me start off by saying that the church needs <clears throat> a right view of God. I think it's actually a very perfect song that we, songs that we sang today. Hail King Jesus. Uh, Ricky's song that they wrote in the team was glorious and beautiful. That we get to call him Abba Father because of the work of the cross. And then just singing holy, holy, holy is enough. Because you know that that's what they're singing around the throne room now, right? Worship is happening right now as we speak. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And you ever think about that that is happening while man is performing the most grotesque, heinous sin on the planet, and all the while in heaven, there's glory. And I think that as the church has a right view of God, they'll live right. In fact, it says, uh, A.W. Tozer, some of you guys know him, that a low view of God is the cause of a hundred lesser evils. But a high view of God is the solution to 10,000 temporal problems. Uh, Lawson, uh, Steve Lawson, he says this, A high view of God leads to high worship and holy living. But a low view of God leads to trivial worship and low living. And I think today the church is always asking for how is this message relevant, 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 relevant? We're, we're so obsessed with the relevancy of messages that I think sometimes we water them down to please man. And it actually has the opposite effect. When we have a low view of God and when the word of God is not preached and God is not exalted, that leads to low base living. And I, I want to read you another quote, but in the midst of a church, I don't know about you, but I'm more and more feeling like an alien in the church. I feel like I don't belong. I feel like I'm a black sheep. You ever felt like that? Where the more you read the word of God and then you even, forget the world. I mean, you, you, obviously there's a massive contrast and if your life doesn't even look different than the world, you're in trouble. What I am talking about is more on the realm of even in the church, when you hear others speak, or when you go to other churches, you just feel like, I feel like I don't even belong. Why is that? Because we've let liberalism, emotionalism, experientialism, pragmatism, Psychology, yes, although that might be offensive even if you have a degree in it. It's okay. God forgives you, loves you. But psychology is not of God. Therapeutic Christianity, sentimentalism, etc., we could go on and on and on and on and on. We've allowed all that in. It's frankly our fault, Right? And then, not only that, but then 
there's the whole, there's all these other movements that brought in intellectualism, rationalism over the years, and even mysticism, which I would say mysticism is very relevant today, where we're more interested in dreams and interpretation than we are in the Word of God that is sure. Or we're more interested in what we feel like maybe God is speaking to us in that subjective form. Or let me say it this way, that we're more interested in sharing vision in your pictures or your pictures that you have in your mind than the very word of God that is able to transform. Right? Somehow that feels more cool or more spiritual or more relevant than the word. The only logical sense, right, the only logical sense, uh, 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 thing to do for, to, as, uh, as we look at an inerrant, inspired, authoritative word is to preach it in an expository manner, line by line. Why? Because it is inerrant. It's without error. Your subjective feelings or what you feel like God is speaking are really irrelevant as it relates to the Word of God. Now, I'm setting this up as a way of introduction because this is important. This is probably one of the more important messages that we'll ever preach in the church today. And I want to take our time to unpack this important message that is really a very familiar passage in Paul in Athens. But Peter, the one who is actually on the mountaintop with Jesus said something very interesting. If you remember the transfiguration, do you remember Peter? He put his foot in his mouth once again. He said he saw Jesus, the resur- not the resurrected, but a glorified Jesus. He was glowing and white, and his face was shining. And then Moses and Elijah were appearing. He's like, this is amazing. I got the prophet. I got the priest. I got the king. Let's, let's just stay here on the mountain. I'll build you a house. We can all just hang out here. Right? You remember? Jesus said, hey, there's more work to be done. As they go down the mountain, he was, disciples couldn't cast out the demon. There was more work to be done. But Peter says something very interesting later on before he died. In the, the time of Jesus were around the 30s, early 30s. And then in the late 60s when he wrote finally his epistle, he matured. And he said something really interesting. And I'll read it to you guys because I think it's important for you guys to see the importance of the Word of God. And it probably won't be on your screen, so uh, you, we're going to have to... I, I like my uh, other microphone better because I'm awkwardly trying to <laughs> figure out how to do this. There's a quote on my phone, and that's why, and it's only so big. So, anyways, um, let's go to... Open your Bibles to 2 Peter 1, 19 through 21. Peter says this. He's an eyewitness. Uh, or let's just start with verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power of and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we are witnesses of his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as, the, as this was made to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. Where is he taking that quote from? God himself. 
when he was on the mountaintop, experiencing this glorified Christ in this way that none of us here have ever experienced. It was glorious. But listen to what he says. He says, although that was absolutely breathtaking and amazing, he says this, and we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Verse 19, so we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you do well to pay attention to, or as a lamp shining in a dark place, which we are in, until the day dawns and the coming morning star rises in your hearts until Jesus returns. What is our hope? It is not to be put in experiences, but in the word. And he says, but know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. We don't even get that. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but by men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. In other words, Peter is saying, that amazing experience of literally seeing a glorified Christ, hearing the Father say, listen to my son, while that is absolutely amazing, he's telling his church in a very persecuted state, when Nero is about to come in and destroy the church, light Christians literally up in flames for their Roman orgies. It was about to get bad, like really bad. He says, I'll tell you the only sure thing that I know is the word. That's amazing. I don't think anyone here sitting, including myself, would say something like that. We would much rather say, I levitated in the back, I saw an angel, he came down in a dream and told me Jesus is real. Every single one of us would say that. You know you would. But Peter is staying here, the experiences of all experiences, he got to see the manna multiplied. He got to see Jesus walking on water, and he actually got to participate that for a time. Short time. And then he says something very profound and saying, I'll tell you what the more sure thing is. The word. If you have to give a vision to your life group, and you have to try to conjure up some experience in order to prove God to be true, you have a problem. But you should be able to stand up in front of your family and friends your co-workers, the people on the streets, and saying, without a doubt, this is true. Because I know the word to be true. Why do I say that? Because we're going to dive in today to the character of God, not according to experience, but according to the word. That God is. We're preaching that unknown God. In other words, if you want to title this message, it is preaching the gospel in a post-Christian world. We no longer can actually go on the streets anymore and say, think that people somehow know the Old Testament, not even Jews. In fact, my son on the ride here, he said, it was interesting, I was talking to a Jew and they said, trying to preach to them, he said, you got, the Jew said, you got the wrong customer. Really? Let me remind you that we're grafted in your tree. 
right? I'm a Gentile grafted into your tree. And you don't know God? You got the wrong customer? That's crazy. And her biggest prayer request is that everyone get a vaccine? What world are we living in? Ma'am, you're going to have a lot more problems than the vaccine when you meet Jesus. A.W. Tozer said this, the basic trouble with the church today is her unworthy concept of God. Our religion is weak because God is weak. Christianity at any given time is strong or weak depending on our concept of God. What comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Right? Isn't that true? The history of mankind will probably show that no people has ever risen above its religion and man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Were we able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question, what comes to mind when you think about God, we might predict with certainty that the spiritual future of that man. Isn't that true? And I'll say this, that I believe that there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ignoble thoughts about God. This is the most important thing. I'm not going to give you a whole lot of examples from my life or stories, sentimental stories about uh, all these things that are most likely really irrelevant. I'm going to preach to you the character of God today. Because I think that's the most important thing that you can have. Amen? And I understand that you may not be there. Some of us still need our emotions to be stirred by some man story. No, you need your emotions to be stirred by the word of God. And I'll tell you, there's nothing like that. Because what we're training you to do is to have a hunger for the word that will be long-lasting far beyond this hour. That you could pick up your Bible every day in the morning and say, I don't know God, I don't know what's going to happen today, but I'm going to pick up this sure word, this sword, and I'm going to read about him in the pages of scriptures, the same one like Polycarp in the middle of about to be eaten by lions, and him say, I cannot blaspheme God because I know him. He didn't get the transfiguration. He didn't even have a complete Bible. That didn't come till 347. But this man knew God. And we can too. Amen? Acts 17, 16 to 21. Let's, let's start reading. Paul in Athens. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. Sound familiar? So when he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, 
and also some Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, we'll get to that in a second, were conversing with them. Some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Probably is what a lot of people think you sound like. Go back to Florida. Others, he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Now, resurrection in that time, it translates a woman deity. So he, people did think he was, talk, he was talking about many different gods. They didn't understand the resurrection. They just understood there was a God named resurrection, and it was a woman God. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus and says, and saying, May we know what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming. For you are bringing some strange deities to our ears. You've got the wrong customer. So So we want to know what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians, now Paul, I mean, not, not Paul, but Luke gives this parent, uh, parenthetical statement to give you an idea of where these people really stood. It's like a little commentary. Now, all these Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. It's just like today, right? We just want to hear something new. No, we want to hear something old and trustworthy. The word of God never changes. Now, the first thing I want to show you is that, well, first of all, before Jesus' time, Athens was the most prominent city. It was full of gods. In fact, there was 30,000 statues of gods in that area. 30,000. You're thinking, how many God, I mean, how many can there possibly be? How do you keep up with all of them? The first thing I want to show you is that Paul was provoked. And that Greek word translates angry and infuriated. When's the last time you got that? With a superficial, sentimental Christianity, you don't get there. Let me read you something I thought was really interesting. I think this is, kind of says a lot, but if you want a really good book to read that kind of gives you an idea of what in the world is happening to evangelicalism, read Courage to be Protestant. <laughs> it takes courage to be an evangelical today. This is what it says here. But a lar- the largest factor in this in- internal change, I think, was that evangelicalism began to be infested by the culture in which it was living. And then Christianity became increasingly reduced to, listen, simply to a private, internal, therapeutic experience. A desire to be culturally relevant and to meet a wide range of felt needs combined with a lack of theological commitment have mixed together to make much that passes as Christianity today a consumer-focused, man-feeling-centered message. Sin is no longer, listen to this, this is true. Sin is no longer against God. It is just a general brokenness in someone's life. Oh, they just have a little brokenness. They need a little economic help and they'll be fine. No, they won't. 
sin is no longer against God, but it's a brokenness. This cross is no longer about atonement or propitiation, about satisfying God's wrath, but about Jesus thinking of you more than anything or anyone else as he dies. Some little, I, I, I'm trying to think of a, another word for this type of Christianity. I just call it cutesy Christianity. Because that's what it is. It's like, hey, Jesus dying on the cross, it's just him kind of being all beaten up, and he's sort of sitting there thinking, oh, wonderful world. i just thinking about you. Really? These books about this, this book here is, is so powerful. It, it opened my eyes to see what in the world is happening, along with Carl Truman's book, The Triumph of the Modern Self, and why we think it's normal today to, to say that uh, a man is just simply trapped in a woman's body. Why we think that is so normal, and he traces back those last 300 years to show you why that has become normal But we have to watch ourselves and never substitute psychological wholeness for biblical holiness or for God himself for that matter. Does that make sense? I know sometimes when you're introducing new ideas and concepts, it just takes a while to sort of settle, and I get that. But I think this is important. This is an important topic, and we have to talk about it because This basically is the problem today in the church. And frankly, for me, being a pastor, I'm more burdened for what's inside the church than the evangelists worried about what's outside. Now, of course, I care about the lost. But my job and the calling of God on my life has been I'm burdened for the church. I want there to be a strong church. When was the last time you were provoked? Nicole and I, when we were first married, we were 23, I surprised her to go to Washington, D.C. We were living in Chicago at the time. And so we, we had no money, and we walked literally everywhere. And we put our feet in the sink in the hotel that night and just sort of let it sit there because we're, our feet were so, we were so cheap to ride the transit system. We didn't have money, but we, just, we got there. And we enjoyed ourselves, and that was the last time we were together in D.C., and that was probably 25, yeah, so that was 14 years ago. And as I was driving to D.C. with her and our two youngest, we were going to dinner uh, and meeting with with some leaders, and with tears in in her and Nicole's eyes, looking at the fence that's around with barbed wire around the state capitol, just grieved her. I said, what in the, I was like, I've been here four times in the last five months. I'm sort of used to it. She's like, I don't even recognize this place. What is provoking to you? Have you just gotten so used to the world and idols that you're just like, that's normal? Or does it provoke an anger in you? Can I just talk to the men for a second? What do you get angry about? What are you angry about? Somebody cutting you off on the street? 
Are you angry about when you, when you hear men fall into pornography or addiction? Are you angry about that people just lie all the time to get their way? What are you angry about? Paul was angry. He was the most godly man besides Jesus. What, are you going to tell him that he shouldn't get provoked? Because we've got to live, we've got to uphold cutesy Christianity? Weak men lead weak churches and produce a weak society. Women want strong men. Women don't want wimps. Women want to see their husbands get angry for things that Jesus got angry with. By the way, let me remind you, Jesus turned tables. He made a whip. It takes a little time to do that. Can you just find one? He's like, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how you make one. I mean, I've never made one. But you just kind of make it. And then you use it. This is Jesus, by the way. QT Christianity will come up here and tell you, hey, we just need economic equality. No, we don't. What gets you angry? I, have, I haven't seen that in a while. Look, we can be, can we, can we be, can we be honest? We can have truth and hope in the same sentence. We can actually be real about what's, in the he- what, what's going on around here and actually also give hope at the same time. Let me tell you what is not the problem. The problem is not climate change. You want to see climate change? Wait till Jesus comes back. We'll see a nice little climate change happen. And I'll tell you that right now because this morning I read it, 2 Peter 3.10. Here's climate change. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat. We're not talking about the recycling heaps. And the earth and its works will be burned. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Now he's getting practical. Looking for and hastening the coming of the Lord God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, here's the hope now, We are looking for the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. The problem at the border is not climate change. It's sin. Right? The problem in this country is not economic equality or racism. It's sin. Amen? Okay. Paul was provoked. 
He couldn't stand 30,000 statues. Now, he didn't go around wrecking it because he understood that God will do his fair share of destroying those things later. And Peter, the same one who wrote about climate change, also said something really interesting, that he desired, God desires that nobody perishes, that all would come to repentance. There's the hope, right? He actually said that a few verses in. And what I mean by that is that we can be a truthful church. We can actually make people uncomfortable and upset the world, but then yet give hope to the world. That's God. We need to know how bad it is. We need to understand the problem, the crisis, before we understand the remedy. By the time it should be, every time you share the gospel, it's like Jonathan Edwards' day. They were holding on, waiting. Is this guy eventually going to give us some hope? And then finally they do, and they let go, and they cling to the cross. And then they're saved. Rather than hearing how amazing they are. If I constantly hear how amazing I am, I'm not sure if I want this bloody offensive cross. What's the need? I'll tell you what the need is. It's not a vaccine. Do you actually believe that, though? And I'm not even talking about politics. I'm not even talking about COVID or anything. I'm not even, if you get a vaccine or not, that's up to you and the Lord. You have freedom. I'm not even talking about that. I'm talking about what people are putting their hope in today. You can hear it. Just hear them on the streets. I've had people almost break an ankle to get away from me because they didn't want COVID, yet both of us were wearing a mask. People are afraid to die. That has always been the issue. People are afraid of the last death But Hebrews gives us hope. It says that Jesus conquered the last remaining enemy, which was death. I can get on an airplane. You can go in the middle of a jungle. And you can stand next to somebody that might have COVID. And you don't have to fear. Because he conquered death. Now, without Christ, I understand that. And we are dealing with people on the streets that don't have that same hope. And understand that we are dealing with different people when we're preaching the gospel. And in Paul's day, number one, it was Epicurean. So if you're taking notes, you can write some of these things down. Because really, this philosophy, there's not much different than today. So the Epicureans, if you know a little bit about them, they are all about pleasure and the avoidance of pain. What they say is, basically, it's not like they deny that there is a God. They're almost like our forefathers. A lot of them were deists. In other words, they believed God was creator. They were, God was there somewhere, but he certainly wasn't involved in our life. We can tolerate him being on our money, or we can say, God bless you when someone sneezes, but him being involved in your life in some sort of intimate way or keeping you accountable, that's out of the question for these guys. They believed in no afterlife. They believed in annihilation. In other words, you live, you drink, eat, eat, drink, and be merry, and then you die and you disintegrate. How many people believe that? Lots, actually. Lots. Number two, the Stoic philosophy was the purpose of this was 
self-mastery. In other words, they, they were kind of indifferent to pain and pleasure. This is a little bit different. But they came to a place where you don't feel anything, and that's sort of the goal. You don't feel pain. You don't feel uh, pleasure. You're kind of numb. You know what's helped that? Medicine. They didn't have that back then. They had to do that in their mind. Now all we have to do is take a pill. And we can actually, really, when you think about it, the pill will help both. We can experience a lot of pleasure. And then we can also experience nothing. There is a lot of pain. There is a lot of brokenness in this world. But we know that the root of it is sin. We are living in an age of skepticism today. People are more cynical than ever before. Also, hedonism. You know, whatever feels good is right. Do it. If it feels good, it's, it's a wonderful hermeneutic. And interpreting life, right? Most people are, they're either skeptical, uh, here and now matters. I'm just, I'm just living here, man. Just, I'm good. I just got to get a little pleasure and whatever they, you know, that's their, that's their way of life. That's their philosophy. And so they're saying, when they're hearing Paul, they're like, you are an idle babbler. In other words, in the Greek, what it means is a seed picker. Kind of has this uh, idea of a bird just sort of, did you, ever see, did you ever watch them? They're like, you know, they like pick up the thing and they kind of crunch it, spit it out, pick up something else. That's what they were doing back then. It was a place where they were just kind of picking up material, not really digesting it, and they're just sort of giving it away. It's like you're kind of an idle babbler. You're kind of like giving us this strange talk. It's sort of interesting. You know, I mean, you're one of many. I mean, your truth is... Your truth and mine's mine, and we can be friends, and we can be unified. There is no unity without truth. Don't buy into anything our government is saying. It's false. Ironically, they want truth in, in, a, in, in race, but yet they've done such a great job in telling us our differences that no, we no longer actually feel like we can be unified. And the only one, by the way, that can unify it is Jesus Christ, which they want nothing to do with. Talk about delusion. Why do you proclaim the strange deities? They were strange because they talked about resurrection, not in a, in, in a sense that one day we'll be resurrected or God was resurrected, but rather, like I said before, he just, they thought he was just spitting other gods and they just were curious and wanted to hear from him. Do not mistake hunger or do not mistake somebody asking questions for their hunger. Hunger is supernatural. Humility is supernatural. It is a characteristic of God. What they were simply doing is, oh, I'm curious. I, I'm, I, you know, and yeah, you know, tell me a little bit more as somebody in your cubicle. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, tell me a little bit more about that faith. That doesn't mean they're hungry. It is an act of God when someone is humble enough to actually receive that truth. Now, listen, I don't want you to be skeptical, but I want you to be truthful. Because people up here will tell you, and people will tell you in different churches, and people will say different things. And what they're ultimately saying is, 
that you can have your cake and eat it too. We can have a nice time all going around evangelizing and, oh, there's such hunger today, such hunger, hunger, hunger. I don't see that. I don't act, do you see that? Can we be honest? Finally, as a church, we hear these superficial testimonies and seem like we're somehow seeing a revival. Revival only happens when God brings it. And so where's our hope? Not in our language, but in God. And we'll see here that there are three different responses every time we go out. And we have to keep that in mind as we go through this passage. So you might be thinking, with all these gods, why is there atheism today? So what about atheism? Why is there atheism? Why do we see so much atheism today? I thought this was an interesting quote. It says, I do not argue with atheists, as a theologian. I simply say, you know very well that God exists. Your problem isn't that you don't know that God exists. Your problem is that you can't stand him. Ultimately, that is the problem. The sin of man is not atheism, it's religion. Everybody has a religion. Everybody on the planet actually has religion. We'll pick up in verse 22. So, so Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you're very religious. And you might go into the United States and federal city and realize, wow, there's a lot of religion here. Right? You can almost name them, the different religions that are out there. There's a lot of religion here. There's a lot of religion in our country. Don't buy an atheism. There's no such thing, actually. It's a lie. Everybody has a religion. And we're finding more of them as we go on in the coming years. In fact, this last year produced a lot of different religions. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. So we're about to get into it. And I just want to say today that we can know this God and you can proclaim with confidence that they can know this God as well. In fact, God is so powerful, so holy, so righteous, so other than, but yet at the same time, God wants to know you and he wants to get involved in your life and he wants you to know him. And that is the hope that Paul was bringing. He's like, look, there's a lot of religion. But I'll tell you, he used that. He used that inscription. Oh, to an undergo. You want to know who that undergo? They always kept it, that open because there was 30,000 deities. There's so, much, there's so many gods. They're like, oh, in case I forget one. We kind of made room for that. We, were, we checked off that box. Hebrews 11.6 says, And without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder for those who seek him. John 1.18, No one has ever seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. Jesus explained God in the flesh. It was the exact representation of him. John 20, verse 29, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are those who do not see, yet believe. That's all of us here in this room. Have you ever wondered how amazing that miracle is? 
that if you believe right now, you're considered blessed more than the apostles were that saw him. And that's the miracle. That's the experience. Like, I believe? That's incredible. God's word says that we can see evidence all around. Psalm 19, 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. What a beautiful sunset yesterday, if you guys were driving back. That was, the heavens were declaring the glory of God. We know God's real. We know he's there. He's no, but no one could, no one could be saved by a sunset. They gotta be saved by the son of God. We know that. But we cannot, we cannot, we, we can look, we're just like, wow, that testifies to us. We fall in love with God because of his beautiful creation. But even someone who does not know him, they are without excuse. The Bible says that in Romans 1.19. That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Everything that begins to exist has a cause. In other words, when people say, well, you know, uh, you know the, the world was created by, you know, a big bang. Or, and I'll, I'll, I'll get into that in a second. And some of you scientists are uh, apologetic-minded people. You're going to like this because we're going to go through some of this stuff, but I think it's important for us to understand that there has to be an uncaused to have, a, to have the first cause. In other words, you can't just keep having cause, 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 cause. There's got to be an uncaused to finally cause, to have some sort of effect, right? Cause and effect. It's very logical. We have to have a God that is uncreated in order for it to work. And so, Paul is wanting them to get to know God. And why, this is, why is this important? Because the people that you're speaking to, guys, do not have the Old Testament in mind. So Paul is actually giving us a different way of evangelism today. Because in, his, in the past, right, he always started with the Old Testament. He started with the prophets. He started with, he started with the, the, um, the priests. Or he started with the, the, the historical books. People are like, Chronicles? What's Chronicles? And understand that people can still come to Christ, but a way to start that is, is giving them, starting with creation, starting them with the knowledge of God. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Aren't you glad the Bible started that way? And then the New Testament starts this way. John 1, 1, 2, 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Huh? Is that? Can I sing it? No, sorry. All these children's songs. They are in my head, as I, as I said, but I'm not going to, uh, you can listen to it for yourself. And the Word was God, and He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Hebrews 3, 4, listen to this. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Wouldn't it be crazy if you just got a bunch of building materials? You know, some of you engineers, you just get a bunch of building materials. You, you, you stick to the plans. You put it all out on the, uh, uh, you know, on the field, and you, you pray for a hurricane to come, and the hurricane comes and somehow builds the house. That's how foolish evolution is. Tell that to them. There is no random chance to this complex universe. Listen to this. This is profound. The lady slipper orchid. I love orchids. I like flowers. 
and I'm very secure in my manhood. God created them. It is an example of a two-stamen orchid. Now, listen to this. It's a little scientific. But the common name implies the lip is very distinctive, being shaped like a shoe or a slipper. You ever seen the insides? Profound. I mean, you look at an orchid, you're thinking, this is amazing flower. The inside of the lip is very smooth, and this, together with the inrolled edges, prevents the easy departure of an insect visitor by the same way in which it came. Instead, it is forced by the shape of the lip and the nature of the surface to move backwards or move towards the back or point of attachment where there are two small exits. In order to gain these exits, this insect must first pass beneath the stigma and then brush past one or two of the other two stamens which deposit pollen onto it, after which it is free to fly off. If it then goes to another slipper, it will pollinate it with the pollen gained from the previous one. The second slipper will not be on the same plant as only one flower is open on a given plant at any given time, a given one time, and thus cross-fertilization is very efficiently affected. The complexity of the interaction between plant and insects is truly staggering for those who will see it. It clearly bears the hallmark of an all-wise creator. In two weeks, I'm going to the Grand Canyon because I simply just want to be small. I want to know what that feels like, again, to be small. I just, I, I, I love the, if you feel so big, so mighty, so powerful, just go to the Grand Canyon. Just go to the Pacific Ocean or Big Sur on the West Coast or go see something much bigger than yourself that you didn't personally create. Psalm 94, 9 says, He who planted the ear, does, does he not hear? He who formed the eye, does he not see? Again, a big view of God is important, isn't it? So why so many atheists? Because the issue is morality. People want to avoid judgment, and they love their sin, so they must remove all accountability. What do you think they're doing, the powers that be? Why do you think they want to take, you know, the gender confusion? There's a book out on the market now that just shows you the scientific evidence of the foolishness of a little girl the age of 10 or 9 or even earlier taking puberty blockers and, and beginning to change and now they grow hair and they change their voice. Do you understand that they can never go back? And people are up in arms because this book is still on Amazon. If people want freedom, then leave it. But if people want control, then take it off. It's very logical, isn't it? Then what's the problem? They're afraid of truth. They're afraid of truth. That's always been the problem, isn't it? Guys, I want a church with the blinders off. You want to know where we're going? I was accused of all sorts of stuff this year. You're controlling, you're this, you're that, whatever. I don't care. At the end of the day, I really don't care. What I care about is truth. 
and a big God. And if someone's doing something not right here, big God will take care of it, right? It's like when you're a little, you know, the, it's like when you're a little kid. It's like uh, Judah understands that. If, if his big brothers are getting on him, they know dad's going to take care of it. In other words, Judah doesn't have to change the constitution. He doesn't have to try to figure out, hey, I got to do this, all these big things, because he can't. He realizes God, God, no, not God, but dad's going to take care of it. He's the man of the household. And he'll come upstairs and he'll tell me, this is, this, this is what happened. This is what Eli, this is what this person did. This is what Caleb did. And he knows something's going to happen. Why do we feel like we have to change everything or we have to be in control? You don't have a big view of God. That's your problem. Right? If you actually had a big view of God, you'd shut up and pray. Amen. Psalm 14, 1 says, The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And that's ultimately what they're saying. They are corrupt. They have committed abominable deeds. There is no one who does good. You're not born good, by the way. Romans 1, 8 to 23, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them. For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world is invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him or give God thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Proclaiming or professing to be wise, they became fools. People have so many letters after the name, and yet they're stupid. And exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and the birds and the four-footed animals and crawling creatures. That's how debased this country is. Paul proclaims the true God, though. And really, I, for the for remainder of the message, I'm sorry, I'm maybe going a little long. I'm only on page two of four. But I, I do want to just say this. You're about to go on a ride right now. So I would just fasten your seatbelts because the next portion of this is just going to give you practically a big view of God through the scriptures. And Paul, that's what Paul is doing. He is proclaiming the true God in the midst of their ignorance. And that is what you're doing today. Deuteronomy 4.35 says this, To you it was shown that you might know God. He is God, and there is no one besides him. 1 Corinthians, or I'm sorry, 1 Chronicles 28.9, My son Solomon... No, this is, I love this, it's just father to son. My son Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind for the Lord searches all hearts. He understands every intent of every thought and if you seek him, he will let you find him. He does not play hide and go seek. But if you forsake him, 
he will reject you forever. And a lot of you guys know, after reading the Bible, you know how Solomon ends. Did he listen to his dad? No, he didn't. He wrote a lot of things about wisdom, didn't he, in Proverbs? Then he wrote a, a very romantic book, which you just stay out of until you're married. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes, and he was like, I bombed it. And his first son absolutely made a wreck of the kingdom. What did God want us to learn from that? When you don't heed your father's words, you're going down. And you're taking everybody with you. So kids, listen to your father. Jeremiah 24, 7. <laughs> it's like those little encouragement cards. I love when I get the kids. Because I could just draw rainbows and Noah's Ark pictures. But then in addition, listen to your parents. Because <laughs> you know the parents are obviously reading it to their kids. And they're like, <laughs> love encouragement cards. Uh, Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know me. For I am the Lord and they will be my people, and I will be their God, for they will return to me with their whole heart. That is God's heart. John seventeen three. this is eternal life that they may know you. And that word know is an intimate knowledge. It's not just an intellectual one. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. So I'm going to give you guys five qualities of the characteristics of God beginning in verse 24. So he's talking about the unknown God and Paul saying this is who it is. The God who made the world and all the things in it. You can be confident of that. Guys, I have struggled with Genesis. In my 21 years of walking with God, there are times when I, yes, there are times when I read these stories and I'm thinking, oh my goodness. The, the thoughts, the bombardment, this is just fantasy. God really created and Adam and Eve, and somehow we got here. You ever have those thoughts? They're real. And you shouldn't ignore them. You gotta, I, I, but at the end of the day, I just, I go back to the word. I said, God, it's true. Every man a liar, right? But God is true. You gotta go back to the word. So that's what Paul did. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needs anything. We don't have a God that's needy. He doesn't need you. Contrary to superficial Christianity that says, oh, God just is lonely without you. He's not. As though he needs anything since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. He's giving them hope. For in him we live and move and exist. And even some of our own poets have said, for we also are his children. 
And we'll get to that in a second, because I know a lot of you guys have questions. Why did Paul give a secular quote? We'll get to there. But being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Number one, or A, if you want, however you want to categorize this. So five characteristics or qualities of God In other words, giving you a big view of God, which leads to more holy living. Number one is God made the world. He is creator. That's who he is. We don't start with the New Testament, with Jesus and salvation. We start with God is creator. And made the heavens and the earth and people to multiply, to have fellowship with each other, to have fellowship with God, to enjoy him forever. But I want to just address how foolish evolution is by just this, because I said I was going to be a little scientific. But the second law of thermodynamics, there are two external proofs that evolution is foolish. Or I should say that God, I should say this, God is creator and there are two external evidences and then there's the internal evidence of scripture. The second law of thermodynamics, do you know what that is? It's the law of what? Entropy. Yes. Who are our scientists in the room? Some, say, raise your hand. How many scientists we honestly got in the room and science majors? Not many. Okay. We need you. We need you. Believe it or not, I was a biology major and Nicole is pre-med. That's, I mean, that's not surprising for her that that, I don't know how I survived more than two years. She helped me in chemistry. I didn't make it through the weed-out class. I was pre-med for like two semesters. I was like, can't do organic chemistry? I'm done. <laughs> I retire. Um, second law of thermodynamics, entropy. In other words, it t- things tend towards disorder. If you have hot water, leave it for a time being. What does it turn? Cold. Does it ever turn hot by itself? No. It goes from mere order to less order. We know that. That's logic. And now we can see how absolutely deluded the evolutionists are. It just simply doesn't make sense. There's no possible way. It takes actually more faith to believe some explosion happened by chance and everything, we just got here somehow. C.S. Lewis says this, If the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of an organic life on this planet was was also an accident. And a whole evolution of man was also by accident too. And if so, then all of our present thoughts are accidents. I just love the way he thinks. The accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. And this holds for the thoughts of the materialists and the astronomers as well as for anyone else's. But if their thoughts are merely accidents by products, why should we believe them to be true? I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents. <laughs> it's just so <laughs> Like, thank you, Lord, for this man. Raise up more C.S. Lewis's in our day. R.C. Sproul says this, there's no maverick molecule in the universe. Not one. This pastor says this, random noise could never produce a Bach cantata. 
Random letters floating in the ocean of alphabet soup will never spell out a chapter of Moby Dick. When we hear the music, we know there's a composer. When we read coherent writing, we know there's an author. How much more does this principle apply to the detailed information contained in the DNA of every living creature? (laughs) And then also, if that doesn't do it, the fossil records also disprove evolution. Evolutionists admit the gaps in theory are gaps and issues with the theory. You guys know that there are major gaps. Despite the right, the bright promise, you guys want to look. Our culture is trying to deconstruct everything. We have every right to dismantle their ideology. Just like I said the other. Just, I mean, we're just on the streets. We're just. Uh, I'm sorry. What are you whistling about? I'm just literally dismantling your foolishness. Despite that, this is one scientist says this, despite the promise, the bright promise that paleontology provides means of seeing evolution, it has presented some nasty difficulties for evolutionists, the most notorious of which the presence of the presence of gaps in quotations in the fossil record. Evolution requires intermediate forms between species and paleontology does not provide them doesn't work. Scripture continually, I'm going to rattle these. Scripture continually affirms that God is creator and he is sovereign over us. We are not in control. Psalm 146, 5 and 6. How blessed is he who, whose help is in God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord, his God who made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them who keeps faith forever. I'm showing you the different writers of Scripture, how they were born at different times and different seasons, yet they said the same exact thing because the Bible is unified. Isaiah 40, verse 28, Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator in the ends of the earth, does does not become weary or tired? His understanding is inscrutable. Your God does not get tired. He has never slept. Jeremiah 10, 12, it is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom, and by his understanding he has stretched out the heavens. Jeremiah 32, 17, ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. For your problems are so tiny compared to an infinite, powerful God. Zechariah 12.1, thus declares the Lord who stretches out the heavens and lays the foundation of the earth and forms the spirit of man within him. We cannot create life. Ephesians 3.9, God who created all things. Paul's now talking. Colossians 1.16, for by him all things were created, both in the heavens and the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. Someone might say, well, I don't see God. I wasn't there. You're right. You weren't there. And you won't be there after him. You were not there before him. Because God is bigger than your small little infinite or finite mind. And you're talking out of your foolishness. 
And what you need, my friend, is wisdom. And wisdom is knowing first the fear of the Lord. Revelation 10.6 says, He who lives forever and ever, who created the heaven and the things in it, and the earth and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there will be delay no longer. This is John on the island of Patmos. They could not kill him. <laughs> Do you ever find that to be pretty, it's pretty humorous. The Roman government couldn't kill him. So they're like, oh, we've got we to banish this guy to a mountain. And so he writes the mo- one of the most profound books on the planet called Revelation. And then he talked about God's plan for climate change. God is Lord of heaven and earth. That's number two, or B. Psalm 24, 1, the earth is the Lord's and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it. Psalm 103, 19, profound psalm. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens. His sovereignty rules over all. In other words, when someone says, I'm not under God, you know that they are under God. Everyone is under God. Do you know that? Sometimes we can twist things and think, okay, well, I'm a Christian, so I'm under God, and I buy into this. But you know that person, they're not under God. And you know, there's some level of an excuse. No, God is either sovereign over the heavens and the earth, or he is not. Daniel 4 34 and 40, 35, if you ever think you have a prideful moment, by the way, just say this, and it rhymes. If you choose pride, God will set you aside. Right? So next time you want to say something to your wife that might be prideful, understand, and like Peter, your prayers won't be answered if you're cruel to your wife. And I've experienced that many times. My wife's smiling right now, by the way, because <laughs> there's no like, there's, <laughs> there's nothing on the, on the, on the, uh, the opposite side. I'm trying to search the scriptures. Is there anything when the wife is bad, when, when the wife's not like, well, like what happens when, oh yeah, when the man's on the corner of the roof in Proverbs <laughs> for a contentious wife? It's balanced. The Lord is, is one of balance. But Nebuchadnezzar made the wrong move one day when he walked onto his palace, you remember? He said, oh, look at all I have created. You know, and it's funny, a lot of people think, oh, you just love one president over the other. Let me tell you something. The last one was narcissistic and he's gone. So just in case you're you're wondering if I'm fair and balanced... I am, because the word tells me so. If you want to choose pride, God will set you aside. And this is what he says, Daniel 4, 34 and 35, but at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, after he was an animal, everyone's like, God is so kind. He is. But he also will make your nails grow out and your hair grow out and you'll become like an eagle in an animal that crawls on all fours for a number of years until you realize who is God. 
raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the most high God and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or I say to him, what have you done? In other words, God was perfectly just to humble Nebuchadnezzar, and he knew that. Who do you know that's like that? Who talks like that? That after a season of humbling, you're like, you know what, guys? You're like, I deserve that. Instead of always thinking with some sort of entitlement mindset. First Kings 8, I'm almost ready to be done here. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I've built. Psalm 139, what a glorious passage. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. If it helps, maybe close your eyes. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path, my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways, even before there was a word on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot contain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make a bed and shield, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will, will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold, of, lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. You are not intimidated of evil. And the night is as bright as day. Darkness and light are alike to you. We have a God that is not like us. And that's why we worship him. Number three. God does not need anything. He gives life to all men and to all things. Psalm 50, verse 9 through 12. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine. He says, the cattle on a thousand hills. You know, those hills and the animals are his. Everything is his. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world is mine and all it contains. Doesn't that just lift your spirits want to worship? It, it lifts you, it, it touches your emotions. You're like, how can I ever have a doubt? How could I ever have a worry? How could I ever be concerned about my future? Psalm 104, 14 and 15, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and the vegetation for the labor of the man so that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine which makes man's heart glad so that he may make his face glisten with oil 
and food which sustains man's hearts. Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things, to him be the glory forever. James 1, 17, every good thing given and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. Matthew 5, 45, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends his reign on the righteous and the unrighteous. And you're wondering, you know, a great passage to read. You're like, man, why is the world just getting away with things? Read Psalm 72. What happens? God makes all things right, doesn't he? What are you concerning yourself with? Not man, but with yourself and with the Lord. Their foot's going to slip one day, and then they'll be gone. That's what it says. So God does, in the meantime, give the sun and the rain to both the righteous and unrighteous. In other words, you cannot judge someone. Man, they seem kind of blessed, so I kind of want to follow their life. Well, that might lead you into a ditch. Don't follow someone's blessings from the outside, or maybe sometimes things are going absolutely disastrous for a long time in someone's life. It's who they follow. And right now, in the meantime, God reigns both on the righteous and the unrighteous. Number four, God controls and determines the affairs of men and nations. Now, him saying that God created from one man, Adam, all the nations was incredibly offensive to the Greeks because they considered all, everyone else barbarians. They were incredibly racist people. All non-Greeks are barbarians. But yet Paul says, you're actually from the same family. You have the same dad. It was kind of offensive. Daniel 2, 37 and 38, God of the heaven and has given the kingdom and the power and the strength and the glory and whatever, whenever, wherever the sons of man dwell or the beasts of the field or the birds of the sky has given them into your hand and has caused you to rule over them. Understand that there, if there's a nation on the planet, it's because God gave them sovereign power. And we do not have to worry about all those things. Luke 21, 24, they will fall by the edge of the sword, will be led captive to all nations. Jerusalem will be trampled under the foot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And it is God in Deuteronomy 32, 8. When the Most High have given the nations their inheritance, when he has separated the sons of man, he sets boundaries of the people according to the number of sons of Israel. And number five, and lastly, of the band come up, God reveals himself to us. And this is when you get the poet, Cretan poet, says, in him we live and move and exist, which is truth. God was try- Paul was trying to relate to the unbeliever who did not have the Old Testament, but it was still truth. All truth is God's truth. Now, I would be careful. I wouldn't just try to search the, you know, the secular poets or you try- let me try to be relating. Let me try to relate. The word of God is enough we got to start there. Of course, Paul, 99.9999% of his message is the word. And he also said, for we, another poet said, for we also are his children, pagans, also acknowledged that there is a creator. And we have people that do not know God here 
in in control and powers that be and, and and everybody else, your teachers. I mean, most of the most of our country, or at least most of the world, believes there's some sort of God. But that is knowing that God is Creator doesn't it has never saved a man. You got to get to the resurrection. And so Paul goes on to say, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The time is now. Because he has fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. You got to get to the resurrection, guys. Now, when they heard these things about the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. That's number one. Number two, we shall hear you again concerning this. Some were indifferent. Some were hostile. Some were indifferent. And so Paul went out of their midst. But some, oh, some, let's believe for that. Some joined him and believed. We can be truthful and hopeful at the same time. And we never have to compromise to sound better. Let me just end with this quote, and then we're done. R.C. Sproul said this about a time when he was a teacher in a seminary. He said, a seminary student in one of my theology classes once approached me after a class in which we had been going over the doctrine of God, which we did this morning. He was bored to tears and said, I need news I can use. I'm a pragmatist. Sproul said, I tried to get him to understand that nothing was more practical than to understand the character of God. If he cannot use that, then the rest of his knowledge is utterly useless altogether. God, there's nothing more relevant than the nature of God. When I read these scriptures, I just can't help but worship and know that God is sovereign and he's going to save who he saves and he's going to use us and we can rejoice at the very end just as the disciples did as they came back from their time, Luke 10, and he just said, Jesus said so profoundly, he said, look, I just, you could be successful, you could not be so successful, but you're getting that, you're, 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 you're looking at that through the lens of man. And you can no longer look at evangelism through the lens of man, he was saying. I want you to look at it through the lens of God. And here's success. You did it. You obeyed. And let me add one more thing in there. Rejoice in this. That if you hear my words, you're considered blessed. If you believe the gospel message, you are blessed. And if you believe your names are written in the book of life that God carries all over heaven with your name written in it.
And if you're going to rejoice at anything, don't rejoice at some miracle. Oh, you'll see plenty of those in heaven. Don't rejoice over the fact that you just got 10 converts. You'll see all the converts and you'll see how your life impacted countless thousands of people. But rejoice in this. You're his. You're his. Isn't that beautiful? That's success. If you can walk away from this time and you could go home sitting on the airplane with your friend and your family member and saying, we left our hearts there. We, we, we left everything there. We left tracks. We left love. We left truth. God, you be the glory. And we could go home at peace. You could go home burdened. There's nothing wrong with that. God wants us to be burdened for the lost. But you could go home with a badge of honor because you're his. And not everybody hears his voice. Everybody's called, but few are chosen. It's out of the mouth of Jesus. So, Father, we thank you. We do thank you that we can hear your voice this morning, and that truly is a miracle. That we can read your word and look at the the bigness of God, the, the view of God is just overwhelming, actually. It's incredible to see how big you are. You created the heavens and the earth, and you're never hungry. You're never needy. You're never wanting. You're perfect in all your ways. But yet you want relationship with sinners like ourselves who are fickle, who are worshiping today and we're grumbling tomorrow. But yet your grace covers all those sins. And you're, you are love. You are pure and righteous and holy and you're near. You're near to us. Would you so touch us by your word this morning so that we would speak truth on the streets, not with anger in our voice or with frowns on our face, but with absolute joy that your word is true and you desire that no one perishes and it's not up to us who does and who doesn't, that we trust you and we trust the results to you and we always know there will be three results every time we go out and we're not ignorant of that but we leave the results in your hands and believe for fourth soil fruit every time. Over hours again and so feel free to just, you know, do what you want to do and make the most of it. Um, and feel free to link up, especially the, the vans that are going to parks. Like, don't, I know we've said try to do things separately so that way we can all be on time. But if you're all at the same park and you want to do stuff, mix up, play, play Frisbee, invite people in, whatever. But when you go to dinner, please still try to eat dinner separately. That way, just the dinner process goes as smooth as possible. I know the Thai restaurant that just, like, the six of us went that were doing some administrative stuff yesterday took like two hours for the six of us to eat and another van showed up and we're like do not come here go somewhere else and um but yeah so just want to encourage you guys to be creative today and all of that 
um, but also be bold. You know, if you hop in a soccer game for 30 minutes and then just walk away, that was kind of a waste of time. But if you hop in a soccer game or a basketball game or whatever, and then as everybody's getting water, you start sharing the gospel. Like, I mean, just, I mean, you guys know how sports are even too. It's like you can just get through a whole lot of barriers just by playing something together. And so, um, so get creative, but also just keep, keep a reminder, just be bold today. And today's really our, our second to last day of intentional outreach. We got today and we got tomorrow. So make the most of it. Um, you know, we're not here to play basketball, but like I said, just get creative and, and do whatever you want. Um, yeah, and so basically the lunch plans for today, uh, drivers, um, I don't know if Eric Pula is back in here yet or not, but um, Eric Pula has our per diem. So just grab your per, per diem from Eric, um, and I think the, the lunch vans are over there setting up. But basically the plan for lunch is grab your lunch, get your sandwich, pack it up, get your stuff, and load up in your vans and go. We don't want to eat lunch here, unless you're a driver or family, because obviously drivers can't eat while they're, while they're driving. But, um, but everybody else, just wait till you get in your van to start eating. We want to, with an hour drive and all of that, we want to get on the road as quickly as possible. And so don't, don't sit down, don't start having lunch in the parking lot. Just go ahead and grab your lunch and load up in your van. And so drivers, make sure you get your lunch too, and make sure you get to your van so that people can get in. Um, but obviously drivers, you know, feel free to eat. In your, in your van real quick or something like that, so you can, you can drive. Um, all right, so you guys got that? Sweet, sweet. And one last thing is make sure you give your uh, gospel tracts and gospels of John. We have a few more, but we've handed most of them out. I mean, there's, I maybe have like 100 left. So that means 900 have, are in y'all's hands or in people's hands in D.C. So if any of those are in y'all's hands, just make sure that they get to the drivers so that way they can stay in vans and actually be used on outreach. Um, and if anybody's already brought some back to the hotel, please, please, please bring them tomorrow so they can actually be used. Um, but so with that, just make sure you give all that stuff to drivers after the end of outreach. But cool, well, let's go ahead and do it. Grab your lunch, same as yesterday. Pack it up, bag it up, and let's roll.